pray. Father, your son rose and you conquered sin and death and Satan and you provided a way for us to know you and to be right with you and to have eternal righteousness granted to us. It is hard for us to come up with words to express our praise, adoration, and thanksgiving for what you have done. But here we are, humbled, rejoicing, and thankful. Work in us as we seek to worship you in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we celebrate all kinds of things in life. There are birthdays and anniversaries, graduations, and other achievements. And in these celebrations, we are trying to demonstrate an appreciation for the work accomplished or the relationship we've been blessed with or the life granted. And most of you know that in uh, the next month or so, we'll be celebrating uh, something I promised to my son Andrew a while back. We're going to be celebrating his 16th birthday, which he's already turned 16. We'll be celebrating by going on a trip through the Appalachian Mountains for a few days. Uh, Lord willing, we'll come back to you and love you once again. Um, in acknowledgement of grace, God giving life, we celebrate different elements of life. And, and there are certain ways you might celebrate certain achievements or milestones. We call these celebrations, we call them uh, parties, whatever you might call them. When we are thinking about our God, there is cause for celebration, and we call this worship. We call it worship. God is worthy of worship. We worship God for his indomitable power, for his limitless wisdom, for his all-encompassing love, for his boundless mercy, and his inexhaustible grace. Words would fail us to express adequately in this life the praise and honor that is due to God and to his name and to what he's accomplished and to what he is still accomplishing. One day, for those of us that know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we will be gathered together at the throne of God before the feet of our Savior, fully glorified in body, soul, and spirit. Our minds and our mouths will glorify God in a way that in this age we are incapable of worshiping God. That day is to come. In the meantime, it is our desire to worship God with the glory and honor that he is due. God has made us to worship him. Jesus made this clear in John chapter 4 when he made this statement. The hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. A divided church, one with members seeking their own agendas, is incapable of properly worshiping our matchless God. One of the realities that has anchored me to this church for the 17 years that I've been pastoring and prior to that as an assistant and prior to that as a member is the wonderful, God-given warmth and unity that we have enjoyed for so many years. And that warmth and that unity is great to be around, but that is not the end of its purpose. The end of unity and the end of harmony and sweet fellowship is not our enjoyment, but the glory of God. And a divided church, one that is not experiencing unity and sweet harmony, cannot rightly worship God as he has called us to. Here's how James states it. In James chapter 3 and verses 1 through 8, he talks about the the tongue and its uh, perversion, its corruption, how it, uh, it, it consumes and harms. And then he transitions from that and he says this, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people, these people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Why? Because it's bad? Yes. But that's not the only reason. He tells us the fruit, the heart of the matter in the rest of that section. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. In other words, if you praise God with the same mouth that you curse men, it's not just you're doing something wrong. It's revealing something about what is driving you, what is directing you, what is controlling you, instead of God, through the Spirit controlling us, we, through our flesh, control us. And the revelation of my heart comes with the words that I speak. And so the unity that God has granted, and we're going to talk about that in just a couple of moments, that granted to the church by his wonderful Spirit is demonstrated in the way we speak of God and the way we deal with one another. And those two things cannot be divided. And so that is the, the foundation 
on which Paul builds his argument here. Take a look at Romans chapter 14. You're, I already had you turn to chapter 15. But chapter 14 and verse 1, as this is the, the opening to this section, we're about to deal with what I believe to be the conclusion. You could bring it down to verse 13, and many do, and, and I understand their argumentation. There's some good points to it, but for the sake of our discussion, we're going to say that it caps off at verse 7 of chapter 15. Romans 14.1, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Welcome him, but not to fight. And then he goes on and says, welcome not to despise him. And then he says, be welcomed, but not to judge the one who welcomed you. Right? He's talking about having a, a welcoming spirit. And why is this? Because in verse 3, God has welcomed him. As we get to chapter 15, he makes this statement to open up chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Here's our text for this morning, beginning in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. As we study this passage this morning, we want to understand three truths about the life of the church. And the first truth about the life of the church is God grants his people a sweet harmony. God grants his people a sweet harmony. Now, the way he's stating it here in chapter 15 is a prayer. God, will you do this? We know elsewhere that God does this, and we will look there after we discuss this for a few moments. The prayer is, Lord, may you, you the God of endurance, the God of encouragement, may you grant to us this sweet harmony that is necessary for worshiping you well. I want for us, first of all, to notice the link between the results of God's word in verse 4, and the nature of God in verse 5. Look at verse 4 again. For whatever was written in former days was written. So what are we talking about written? The word is graphe, right? So scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be made perfect, thoroughly furnished for every good work. God's word was written in former days for what reason? For our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the, what? Scriptures, we might have hope. That's the scriptures in verse 4 result in endurance and they result in encouragement so we might have hope. And now he says in verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. So there's a definite and important relationship between the 
characteristic of God's word and the results of God's word and the very nature of God himself. God is characterized by endurance and encouragement, and he uses his word to produce these characteristics in his people. So this this ought to cause us to pause for a moment. It's right for us to pause for a moment to consider your relationship, first of all, with the God of endurance and encouragement and your discipline with regard to opening his word. If you would like for the God who is characterized by endurance and encouragement to grant you endurance and encouragement, he has a remedy for you, an avenue for you, a means to an end for you, and that is open his word, knowing that it is from him, knowing that it is nourishment to your soul, knowing that in the pages of God's word, he is revealing first and foremost who he is and his purposes and what he has done and what he will do and to a lesser important but important part, he's revealing our nature apart from him, that is that of sinfulness and brokenness and inability, our desperate need for the God of redemption to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin, and from the consequences of our sin. So as you're opening the pages of scripture, you're looking, we are looking for the glory of God. We're looking for the articulation of who God is. We're looking to see what God has done, is doing, and will do, and how we, apart from him, are completely incapable of accomplishing what we've been called to do. But yet, understanding that the God of endurance and encouragement will bring us along and instill in us the character necessary to accomplish his purposes. It's a beautiful reality that we recognize as we open the scriptures regularly with eyes ready to see and ears ready to hear and wills ready to be bent. God grants his people a sweet harmony and it comes as a result of our submission first to God and our dedication to surrendering our will to him as we read his word. Sweet harmony is a gracious gift of God. It says in verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, grant you. The word didomi has the idea of a gift, a gift. Anything God gives is a grace gift. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, nor shadow of turning. So God grants, he gives this gift of the same mindset with one another. It says to live in such harmony with one another, but it's the same mind as one another. Amos talks about it like this. He says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Well, let's say this. If, if I tell you, I'm going to meet you at 2 o'clock, but I don't tell you where. How's that going to work out? Well, you might show up at my house, but I meant for you to meet me at Walmart. Now, I wouldn't say that because I really don't want to go to Walmart ever for the rest of my life. 
I have a lot of stories about that, but I will leave them there. <laughs> if we don't agree upon a place to meet, there's no harmony, there's no agreement, there's no ability to walk. A same mind. God grants a oneness of mind, a place of meeting, a place where we can commune together with a purpose. What is that purpose? Well, if you're going for a walk, you're, you're going to view the scenes, and you're going to talk together, and you're going to get some exercise. You have some purposes. Well, the coming together with one mind in this text is not for exercise of our physical body, but the exercise of our spiritual being and the worship of God and the glorification of God, the praise of God with our minds and with our mouths. We'll get to that in a little bit. The harmony called for in this text is the way of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Will you read the end of the verse with me? In accord with Christ. In accord with Christ. It is both his will in accordance with the call of Christ and it is also in accordance with his example in the way of Christ. So both his will to, to gather together with one mind in harmony together but it's also following the pattern and reflecting the way of our Savior. With that being said, I want for us to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look, please, at verses 1 through 6. I want to point out a couple of things before we read the text. There is a call in this text. There's also a demonstration of God's already gracious gift in the text. And then there's a foundational argument of what it is all based upon in the text. The call is in verses 1 and 2. The gracious gift you'll see very clearly in verse 3. And the foundation is in verses 4, 5, and 6. Look please with me. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, how? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Just stop there for a moment. There's the call, and it's, it's, it's an immense task. Some people have a more gentle nature than others. We're not talking about nature. Some people have more of a tendency toward humility than others. We're not talking about our nature. Some people are more tolerant than others. We're not talking about our nature. We're talking about spiritual fruit. We're talking about may the God of all grace work in you and in me to the point that his gentleness is on display, that the humility of Christ is on display, that the kind of tolerance that comes through the love of God is on display. We're not talking about grabbing ourselves and picking ourselves up by the bootstraps and, and really doing these characteristics of God, you and I can't do it. But there is a call. Just because I can't doesn't mean I have no responsibility. I am responsible. I just have to know that I can't bring across this fruit. I need to come under humble submission to the Lord and recognize when I am demonstrating something else to repent. God, I'm, I am not... I am not exhibiting your grace. I am not exhibiting your humility. 
I am not exhibiting your gentleness. I am not patient with others. I am not bearing with others in love. There's the call. Verse 3 is the gracious gift. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's already a unity that the Spirit has provided and a bond of peace that the Spirit has provided that we're simply seeking not to mess up. Don't get in the way of the unity that the Spirit has already brought forth. Don't get in the way of the bond of peace that God has already provided through the Spirit. Don't don't get yourself in the mix and foul it up. Our call is to walk worthy of the manner that we've been called to with those characteristics that are come from the Spirit, seeking to maintain what God has already granted by His Spirit, that, that beautiful harmony that comes from the Spirit. And here's the foundation. You see, what some want to say is we have to throw doctrine out the window. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Throw doctrine out the window so we can just love one another. Well, that's not real love. Real love is in accordance with truth. We have to be discerning what doctrinal elements cause division and what doctrinal elements must be there as foundational for that unity. And he gives us a little sampling here in verses 4 through 6. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's telling us to, to, to seek to maintain this unity that God has granted. James says it this way in James 3.17. He's talking about the difference between earthly wisdom and the wisdom from above. He's telling us the difference between unwise living and wise living, between an understanding way and a not understanding way. Here's the, the wisdom of the world is demonstrated in strife and contention and fighting. And the wisdom from above is, is like this in James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It is, it's really uh, an astounding set. And it's very similar in its character to what we see in Galatians 5, and 23, which says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This peaceful peacemaking way is characteristic of the spirit of God's kingdom. We've covered this already in Romans 14, 17, which says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus made his disciples and those around very well aware of the character of those that are to be followers of God. He said this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. Blessed are the, what does it say? Peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peter quoted the psalmist in 1 Peter 3.11 when he said, Let us seek peace. He didn't stop there. And pursue it. Seek it 
and pursue it. Seek and pursue. The idea of of that pursuit is a, a dogged determination not to stop at the first sign of trouble or the second sign of trouble or the third sign of trouble. Seek peace and pursue it until it is on display. When God's spirit is controlling us, there can be peace and peacemaking even in the face of disagreement. Well, I quote here Thomas Schreiner quoting Charles Cranfield. Ready? Charles, uh, Thomas Schreiner quoting Charles Cranfield. He wrote this. Cranfield wisely remarks that the unity prayed for here is not unanimity on the issues that divide the weak and the strong. Paul is not praying that unity will be achieved via the weak surrendering their unsatisfactory theology. He prays that they will be unified by learning to love and accept one another in the midst of their differences. Could you just let that sit in for a moment? The question we have to ask ourselves, is Romans 14 and 15 instructing us, calling us to make for unity at any cost? And the answer to that is an obvious and emphatic no. Should we forget completely about areas of doctrinal disagreement? The answer to that is an obvious and emphatic, no. So I will share with you what Dr. Albert Moeller has simplified in the process he calls triage. You know, sorting things out. All right, this guy needs, this guy needs a leg. Let's get him over here. He's, he's, on, he's on the front row of having to deal with something. He has a, a boo-boo. Well, you, you're going to wait in the back of the, the emergency room for a while. You've got a little cut. You, know, you, you should have stayed home and just put a Band-Aid on that thing. But we'll wait. We'll, 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 We'll charge you your copay and everything else. Just sit over there and watch TV. Triage. Vitally important. Needs to be covered up lest there be an infection. You know what I mean. First level of theological issues include issues like this. These are non-negotiables. The basis of true Christian fellowship. If these items aren't met, there's no, no fellowship. The Trinity, that, that means that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are one essence, eternally God, three persons. God the Father is not God the Son, is not God the Spirit. God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Spirit is God. Three persons, one essence, eternally God, Trinity. That's a first level issue. The full humanity and the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a first level issue. There cannot be true Christian fellowship with someone, with two people, one that says Jesus is God, fully God and fully man, and this person says he was just a man or he was just a spirit God. No, no fellowship, no harmony this person is a redeemed Christian. This person is an unredeemed heretic. No fellowship between those churches. None. Justification by faith. 
There's a lot that's involved in that doctrine. Justification by faith. That means God's grace is necessary. God entrusts, grants his justification through how, what? Faith in Christ. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The redemptive work of Jesus Christ, which includes his virgin birth, his perfect, obedient life, his willingness to lay down his life as a sacrifice for my sin, his burial, and his resurrection, all of these are necessary components to understand and embrace for a person to come to know God and have a relationship with God that is based upon his gracious, redeeming work. The full humanity, full deity of Christ, and justification by faith in Christ and the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Which means what God says, He wrote for us. It is forever settled in heaven. What God says here is truth, regardless of what men may say. If something is contradictory toward God's word, what do we choose? God's word. This is infallible. It is perfect in all its ways. God has communicated to us what we need to know, the authority of Scripture. These are necessary components for Christians to have fellowship. Remove these, any one of these, and that fellowship is inextricably broken. Can you be a friend of someone that doesn't believe that? Of course you can. You can go to coffee. You can talk to them. You can have, be friends with your neighbor who doesn't agree with you. You can be friends with a coworker who doesn't agree with you. All of, but we're not, we're not talking about friendship. We're talking about fellowship, true, intimate union with one another through Christ. There's a second order of doctrines that must be distinguished to, to, to understand. Uh, and I'll quote Dr. Moeller here. The set of second order doctrines is distinguished from the first order set by the fact that believing Christians may disagree on the second order issues, though this disagreement will create significant boundaries between believers. When Christians organize themselves in congregations and denom denominational forms, these boundaries become evident. In other words, there are Presbyterians and there are Baptists and there are non-denominational people. There, they, these people may all agree on the foundational elements. They may have Christian fellowship, but when it comes to church life, it doesn't really work. Here's an illustration of it by Jeremy Rinney, uh, who, who wrote this. He, he gives a good illustration of this in a recent article. Second order issues are those that sincere Bible-believing Christians can disagree over, and yet local churches must take a stand on one way or another. Baptism is a classic second-order issue. Should churches baptize professing believers only or only the children of professing believers? Your answer to that question should not rise to the level of saving truth. As a Baptist, I'm confident there will be many Presbyterians in heaven, and yet a local church must decide to baptize infants or not. You can't do both. See how that would not work in a church? So, so while there's 
harmony as Christians, getting together in the same local church and functioning together, there would be some boundaries that would be crossed. It would be difficult. It wouldn't work. So it may, may be a, a, a cause for having a church over here and a church over here. That doesn't mean we don't like one another and won't spend eternity together, but it doesn't function together. Now we come to a third order of doctrines, and Moeller writes, the third order issues are, uh, are doctrines over which Christians may disagree and remain in close fellowship, even within local congregations. I would put most, this is him speaking, and I agree, or I wouldn't be reading it, I would put most of the debates over eschatology, for example, in this category. Christians who affirm the bodily, historical, and victorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ may differ over timetable and sequence without rupturing the fellowship of the church. Christians may find themselves in disagreement over any number of issues related to the interpretation of difficult texts or the understanding of matters of common disagreement. Nevertheless, standing together on issues of more urgent importance, believers are able to accept one another without compromise when third-order issues are in question. So for clarity's sake, just to kind of take, take a step back from those things that some of you probably started to have your eyes rolled back into the back of your head on, God grants sweet harmony to his church. Our job is to recognize this gracious gift and seek to maintain it by his grace. Disagreements may arise, but there are many issues upon which we can agree to disagree and live in respect for one another's differences, seeking one another's good. And that's just the issue that's come up in Romans 14 and 15. Because he tells them, if you want to eat meat, eat it. If you don't want to eat meat, don't eat it. If you want to celebrate a certain day, celebrate it. If you don't want to celebrate a certain day, don't celebrate it. He doesn't say, if you feel like killing someone, kill them. He doesn't say, if you want to commit fornication, commit it. Adultery? Adultery all the way. He's not removing standards. He's saying areas that God has clearly said are non-issues, you have freedom. You can either participate or not participate. He's not removing restrictions of certain activities. He's saying where God has not demanded something, don't make an issue of it. And make sure you care enough about your neighbor, your brother and sister in Christ, that if it really bothers them, that you welcome them and don't offend them in it. Learn, care enough about one another to learn areas of disagreement and don't cross those lines in front of them. Why? Because you love them more than you love yourself. That's a hard one, isn't it? If, if you don't think that's hard, it means you don't really know what it means to love someone more than yourself. That's supernatural. It's another grace gift. Lord, I think of myself 24 hours a day. If I'm tired, I sleep. If I'm hungry, I eat. I'm very well aware of my needs, and I take care of myself. The call here that we're where we are in our understanding as we head back to Romans 15 is that God has granted to his church a sweet harmony and it is important. That harmony is important. It's not unimportant. Romans 15, look please at verse 6. 
we look at the second order of, or the, the second idea or truth that is communicated about the life of the church is that the unity is not expressed as an end unto itself. Instead, it is for the expressed purpose of bringing glory to God. Take a look at verse 6. That, you know what that is? That is a purpose word. That says, here's the reason. Here's the reason why God is doing this. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word together is an interesting word used ten times in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it is used ten times and it's translated this way. Accord, together, and uh, unified or unity. Uh, united. And the image is almost musical. It's a, a, a number of notes are sounded which, while different, harmonize in pitch and tone. And the instruments uh, of a great concert under the direction of a concert master so the holy spirit blends together the lives of members of the members of christ's church this being unified is in our inner man that's the first step look again at verse verse six that together and the word has the idea uh, the the first part of is same homo and then um thumadon has the idea of mind together minded minding together so it's first in the inner man, and then it's externalized. Look what it says. That together you may with one voice. So now the word voice is the word for, for mouth. So first it's mind, and then it's mouth. Take a look, please, at Hebrews chapter 13. We must seek to glorify God. This is the end unto which God has called us to this unity. It's not unity for hey, it's a swell gathering together of a group of people's sake. It is for the glory of God's sake. And in Hebrews chapter 13, it is such a, a glorious passage. It's, it's almost, uh, it's a challenge to cut into the middle of it, but we have to for time's sake. Verse 12 of Hebrews 13. It says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to what? Sanctify, make holy the people through his own blood. Therefore, because of that, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing the reproach he endured. In other words, be willing to sacrifice and suffer for the sake of Christ. Follow the example of Christ is the idea. Verse 14. For here, in this world, in this time, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge or give thanks to his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Because you see what Christ has done, going outside the camp to bear our reproach, to make us holy. God says, you also go to him outside the camp, bear the reproach that comes with being one of God's people. And while that's taking place, you're doing it, I'm doing it, and she's doing it, and he's doing it. We're all going outside the camp, 
And what are we doing? We are together, together praising God with the fruit of our lips. It says the acknowledging, the, the word is homo the confessing of his name, the praising of his name. That's the purpose. The purpose is when we gather together with one spirit and one mouth to do what? Well, to give the same message. That's true, but not true enough. To give the message that conveys the glory of God. It's a very interesting thing, talking about the glory of God. It's a little nebulous. Can I make God more glorious? Can you make God more glorious? Can any church make God more glorious? No. But we're called to glorify God. And so I prefer, just for the sake of my understanding and communication, the word magnify. You look at the things God has made in the sky. You look at the moon. Beautiful, isn't it? Have you looked at the moon with a telescope? Did the moon get bigger? No. Did the moon get more glorious? No. You just got a better glimpse of it. And that really, folks, is our job. To help people, ourselves included, to get a more glorious look at the glory of God. He is glorious. He's glorious in every way. He's glorious in his person, he's glorious in his nature, he's glorious in his acts. I will never make him more glorious in any way, shape, or form. However, it is my goal, and it should be our goal corporately, to let people get a, an insider look, a more glorious, magnified look to understand him. We must glorify God. Our minds are united because our focus is upon God, who he is, and what he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So our mouths are united to offer to him the praise to which he is worthy. We're seeking to magnify the glory of God for one another and for a watching world. And so this brings us to a third. As we head back to Romans chapter 15, please. Romans 15, we head to our third Truth regarding life in the church or the life of the church. The first concept is that God has granted to us a sweet harmony. Secondly, we must be seeking to glorify or magnify God. Thirdly, and this is the overall point of the passage, we must welcome one another. Now that does not supersede the second truth. Second truth, most important truth, right? Does everyone see it? Look at second truth. Most important truth, right? That's the most important truth of this entire passage. That the church is to, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the big headliner of the entire passage. We spend a lot more time on the other points because... If we don't do the other points, point number two never happens. We've spent a long time in this passage, a number of weeks now. It's of vital importance because our job 
is to let the glory of God shine, to point to how glorious God is. And we cannot, we cannot if we don't do these things. Our welcoming one another is based upon Christ's welcoming us. Verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So this, this requires one pause and question. What is the basis of Jesus welcoming you? Well, I'm a swell guy. And after all, I dressed up to come to church this morning. And I even shaved my head for the occasion. And my face. Don't I look spiffy? I suntanned this head yesterday uh, for this occasion as well. Is, that, is this why I'm accepted? No, because if that were the basis, I would really be um, on the outside looking in. The basis is coming to him on the basis of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. I, right now, stand acceptable before my Father in heaven because of what Jesus has done on my account, in my stead. And because the Spirit made me see myself as a sinner and made me understand that my sin is an offense to God that must be dealt with, called me to turn, turn, turn from my sin and call upon the name of the Lord. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be, what is it, saved. As you call the name of the Lord, you turn from your sin and call the the name of the Lord. This makes us acceptable before God. Christ has welcomed us. Our welcoming one another is based upon Christ's welcoming us. If we do not welcome one another, we cannot accomplish, verse 6, glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one mouth. We cannot. If we do not welcome one another, we are wasting God's gift in verse 5. God grants us this sweet harmony. And we say, eh, whatever. Wasting God's gift. If we do not welcome one another, we are walking contrary to God. He's told us in chapter 14 and verse 1 to welcome one another. He's told us in chapter 14 and verse 3 that he has welcomed those that come to him. In chapter 15 and verse 7, which we just read, that Christ has welcomed us. We are walking contrary to God. If we do not welcome one another, we are not magnifying God's glory. Verses 6 and 7. Because look what again it says in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Say it with me, please. For the glory of God. That's stating things kind of negatively, isn't it? Well, let's state it positively. When we welcome one another, we open the door to reflecting the agenda of God. Right? Who's the gospel for? Everyone. Everyone. We open the door. 
I can't make someone come through the door. You can't make someone come through the door. The church can't make someone come through the door. But we open the door and say, look at who God is. Look at what Jesus has done. Look at the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is sufficient to pay for your sin. It is sufficient to remove from you eternal guilt and eternal condemnation, eternal judgment. Look at what God has done for you. He's provided you what's necessary that you might stand, stand in the presence of God with the righteousness of Christ robing you so that you stand perfect and complete before Jesus Christ, before God. This is, this is what we, we open the door when we're welcoming one another. When we're shutting people off, we're not opening the door. When we welcome one another, secondly, we allow God's gift to be effective. When God grants us something, we say, yes, Lord, yes. Lord, I want to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I need your gentleness. I need your humility. I need your, your love to help me to forbear with, bear with one another. I need this, Lord. Thirdly, we reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, we reflect the Spirit of God's kingdom. We've talked about these things previously. Fifthly, we bring glory to God. We magnify the glory of God. So two questions and then we'll pray. Has God welcomed you into his kingdom? Are you welcoming others? Let's pray. Father, we want to be channels of blessing and we want to be those that magnify who you are, what you have done, are doing, and will do. Help us to die to ourselves, to be filled with your spirit, and to seek to reflect your glorious kingdom, to reflect your glorious son, and to reflect your glorious gospel. We commit this to you. We commit ourselves to you. Be glorified. We also pray for anyone here that's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that today they would confidently and permanently turn from their sin, turn to you through Jesus Christ, and receive your eternal love.